brother. This morning, we're finishing up our series in the book of Esther. You're going, yay! Finally, 15 weeks later. Just kidding. A couple of dates I want to see if you remember where these came from. We're talking this morning about deliverance and God's delivering his children. December 7th, 1941. Pearl Harbor. July 4th, 1776. Independence Day. Well, that was the day it was signed, not the day it was voted on, right? January 9th, 1969. Yes, my birthday. One person. Yes. All right. Sorry, it's empty. June 6, 1944, D-Day. This morning we're going to talk about D-Day from a little bit different angle. You know, we celebrated D-Day just recently here in the States. We commemorated, remembered it anyway. But Esther chapter 9 is a D-Day for the Jews. December 9th, June 6th, 1944. The Allied invasion of Normandy, France. Horrible time. If you know anybody who's, who's in that, who lived through that, make sure to honor their sacrifice, honor their time that they put into our military, honor those who served in World War II and in other conflicts to preserve the peace that we have today. That day, over 10,000 Allied troops either injured, died, or missing stormed those beaches. 4,400 died. The two months leading up to that, in preparing for that day, 12,000 men and 2,000 aircraft gone leading up to that day. Altogether, the Battle of Normandy, 425,000 Allied and Axis troops were killed, wounded, or missing in action. Just during that battle time. It's a sad time for our world, a sad time for the countries that were involved because it really didn't have to have it have to happen, right? But we remember that time as the push toward the end of the war, the push toward peace. See, in Esther chapter 9, the Jews were facing their own D-Day. The law of Ahasuerus that Haman had crafted, that was put in and stamped by the law of the Medes and Persians, which could not be broken, was going into effect. The Jews across the whole region of the Persian Empire were in danger. The Persians were going to be allowed to rise up and to kill them and to take possession of their stuff, any who wanted to. Nine months earlier than this, Haman had been killed, Mordecai lifted up into power, and crafted another order, which now gave the Jews permission to fight back against this law. Give them permission to not just take it laying down, literally, 
But they have permission now to stand up and say, no, you will not kill us. You will not come against our people. We will fight back against you. The day came. In spite of all the fighting, fighting for freedom, in spite of all the fasting, in spite of all the praying, in spite of all that was going on in that time good with the Jewish people, they will now to celebrate the queen and, and Mordecai's power in, in, the, in, that, in the throne. The day came when they had to face evil. Look with me in Gen- Esther chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And the king's command, the law went, in, went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar. It went into effect in spite of all that happened. March 473 B.C., this law went into effect. The enemies of the Jews rise up. They decide that they're going to go out anyway. No matter this new law that's been into effect, they know the Jews are prepared. They know that making preparations to, and just in case something happens, the enemies decide to rise up anyway, all across the Persian Empire. On this day, because they're allowed to by law. Likely that these enemies of the Jews are the mercenaries and the garrison guards, the troops that have been organized and funded by Haman previously. Persian documents say that it's really only the Amalekites who are rising up against the Jews. That's interesting to note. I was, I was reading through this, it doesn't make any mention of that in God's Word, but as you go back and read some of the Persian documents that were around the time they mentioned the Amalekites that rose up against the Jews and got wiped out. And if you remember from our history lesson the first week, the Amalekites were the people of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Verses 7 through 10 suggest that Haman's sons helped to carry out the plot in, spite of, in lieu of their father since he was dead. They now carried out the plot. I mean, for nine months, they've been seething with anger. They've been seething with jealousy, seething with rage, waiting for the time when they could rise up and take revenge on their enemies. All this leads us to believe that it wasn't just the ordinary citizens of Persia rising up, but it was actually the enemies, those who had been planning, those who had been scheming, those who have been funded by Haman to take on the Jews. And you know, we know what happened. In the provinces, if you read through the rest of the chapter, we'll get down to that in a minute, you see that 75,000 men were killed. Not Jews, the enemies of the Jews. As they rose up against the Jews, these people were killed and, and slaughtered because they chose to rise up against the people of God. And the capital city of Susa, the Bible says that 500 men were killed and the 10 sons of Haman. All those who came against the Jews on their D-Day, this destruction day, this day of destruction, they came against the Jews and they were killed. This leads us to know that in spite of all that we may be, all, this, all the plans we may be making, all the things we may be doing in prayer and and fasting, and making godly preparations, Satan is always at work behind the scenes. We've been talking about the fingerprints of God all through the book of Esther, right? We're talking about the fingerprints of God in our lives as well. Even when we can't see God working, 
He's at work. But even when we can't see Satan working, he's behind the scenes working as well, trying to waiting for his time to come against us. We need to make sure that we are always, always prepared and look for that time of deliverance when God will deliver his people. And he may deliver us not in a way as, 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 as openly as this as we read here in the book of Esther. We may not have men and people coming against us with swords and clubs and guns and stuff and God's going to deliver us that way. God will deliver his people. He'll always make a way of deliverance for us. Satan is always prowling around. We have a dog. Our dog's got about as much of a brain as Jar Jar Binks in Star Wars. It's got a tongue about this long. Not as long as a golden retriever. But you'll be laying there, you're sitting on the couch, and you'll be sitting there, and all of a sudden she'll walk up and go right up your leg, and you're like, oh, come on, really? This dog, we love her, but she is tormented by a cat in our neighborhood. You know where I'm going. Cats are evil, right? This cat, when we first moved in a year ago, we, we leave our front door open most of the time so we can see out and get the nice breeze, cross breeze through the house, right? And so this cat comes walking down the drive, walking down the sidewalk and stops and looks and sits right on the sidewalk looking at our dog and just preens herself. She's crying, nah, 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 nah. you can't, I'm outside, you're inside, you can't come get me, right? Next week, the cat is on the lawn getting closer. The next week, right on our front porch, our dog is like, she's crawling up there. I'm going to get it. going to get it. And then she lays down. Really, dog? Well, I'm kind of glad she did. She would have gone right into the screen, screen door and broken our fence. And I'd have to broken our screen fence and I would have had to get after her. But, but Satan is not that way. Satan is like a lion prowling around. Satan is like that lion looking for our destruction. Engaged actively in our destruction. He's kind of like that cat, teasing you. But imagine the dog prowling up to the door, but not stopping at the screen, going through the screen to find find that cat on the other side. As Satan comes after us, he is like that lion. In chapter 1, the end of, end of chapter 9, verse 1, it says, On the day that the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews over, overpowered those who hated them. Those, the enemies, were seeking to prowl after and come after the Jews. They got overpowered. The Jewish men were organized and armed and ready to meet anyone who came against them. And I love what it says there. In verse 2, it says, Not a single person could withstand them. The fear of them fell on every nationality. The fear of God's people fell on the Persians who were seeking to come after them. All, it's a huge empire. It's whole, every nationality that encompassed inside this empire. The fear of the Jews demoralized them from rising up. If, if the law of Mordecai had not been put into effect... Likely, other, 
Others would have joined in the battle. Others would have joined in what was going on. Others would have joined the enemies that weren't just paid mercenaries. But the fear of God's people fell on the Persians. You look at society today. Who does the unbelieving world fear? They fear God's people and they fear the Bible. They fear the teachings that come from God's word and they fear God. They may not vocalize it in those words, but when they're fighting against us, they're not just fighting against God's people. They're not fighting against the church. They're fighting against Almighty God. When they're trying to pass laws to limit our freedoms, when they're trying to pass laws to make sure that we don't speak out in the workplace, when we don't speak out, how dare you talk about my lifestyle? How dare you judge me for my lifestyle? They're not speaking out against us. They're speaking out against God, who they really fear in the back of their minds. But outwardly, they've lost their fear of God. I love in Genesis chapter 35, it says, and talking about Jacob traveling to Bethel, it says, And they, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities, and they were around them so that they, they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The fear of God and God's people fell upon those nations, so as Jacob was traveling, they did not mess with him. As the people got ready to enter the promised land, God says, This day I will begin to put a dread and a fear of you, of the people who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. As the nation of Israel got ready to travel into the promised land, God says, Don't worry. From this day forward, I'm going to put a fear of you in the hearts of the Canaanites, in the hearts of those people. So as you come in to the nation, to land that I have promised you, I'm making it easy, easier for you. Even in Jericho, Rahab says in Joshua chapter 2, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and those who were beyond the Jordan, and Sihon and Og, whom you devoted, devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, listen to this, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth below. As the people, as a nation of God, the nation of, of the people of God entering into the promise that God had already gone ahead and prepared the hearts. Why do we fear proclaiming God's word? Why do we fear standing up for what is right? Why do we fear the world? God is preparing the hearts already for the message that we are bringing. Do not fear. If God tells you to go talk to somebody, you go and talk to them. God has prepared their heart for the message. Do not fear. They fear our God. They may not want to admit it, that they, that, this, that they really truly believe God, but if in, their heart, in their deepest heart of hearts, even the most devout atheist fears the future. They fear the end. The most devout agnostic fears the end. They fear what they 
truly, truly know to be true. They fear the message. They fear the good news of God's word because they do not want to change. And in this world, at this time, as the, as the people of God and Esther were preparing to protect themselves, God put a fear in the hearts of all the Persians. So the normal, ordinary citizenry did not rise up as well with the paid mercenaries. God exalted his name and fights for his people. Interesting to note that even after they turned the tables on their enemies, they did not take joy in the destruction of their enemies. They could have very easily, by law, after they destroyed, totally destroyed, the 75,000 in the outlying provinces and the 500 in the city and the sons of Haman, they could have plundered those households by Persian law. It was their right to plunder those households and take all that, all that wealth and the land and everything upon themselves. But three times in verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, it says, and they did not seize any plunder. What did that communicate to that society? What did that communicate? That they had the right in their hand by law to plunder these people but yet they chose to turn the other cheek. They defended themselves, but they did not exercise their right to take upon themselves that stuff. What testimony did they have now in that community? What testimonies did they have going forward in that community as they were now worshiping in the synagogue, as they were proclaiming the name of the Most High God in their communities? Did the people now remember the evil in the hearts of the Jews as they destroyed their enemies and plundered their stuff, or they remember the mercy and the grace and the love that was shown in their communities. I think that their testimony was able to go forward, and they were able to now proclaim the word of God in that land more because of what they did not do and not claiming their right. The only right we have as believers, is the rights that God gives us. As a believer, as a child of God, who has humbled myself and given myself over to my Savior, who has now asked God to forgive me and rede- he has now redeemed me, as his child is my right to go to heaven. That's it. That's it. I get to go to heaven. I get to worship the Lord for all of eternity. I get to sit and play heavenly drums. Y'all get to enjoy it for all of eternity. Just think. We get to be together for all of eternity. If we are a child of God, we have been delivered from sin. We have been delivered from Satan's power in our lives. We have been delivered, much like the Jews were delivered from their enemies in the, here in the book of Esther. They were delivered. We have been delivered as well. What if they had given in to their base desire? What if they had given in and plundered? What if we gave in to our sins, our sinful desires? What would we lose in our communities? What would we lose 
and our families if we give in. When you go home today, I want you to get a piece of paper out. And I want you to make a list of what you would lose if you gave in to sin. I don't mean big sins, small sins too. My short list, if I decide to give in to sin, because we know sin is pleasurable for a season, right? But you think, we have to think long term. As God's children, we have to think long term. What, what would happen? What would happen to me? What would happen to my family if I decided just to give in to sin? A very short list I put together. My God would be so totally disappointed in me when I give in to sin. My wife and my family would be disappointed in me. And there's ramifications that happen there as well when I give in to sin. The testimony of our church as the pastor, my if I fall into sin in our community, it, my, my sin has bigger ramifications because now they reflects upon our church, Mount States Baptist Church, and on the church family, and in our community as well. The ramifications there, if I fall into bigger sin, what would happen to our church? What would happen to the body of Christ that's here? What would happen in the community and how they would look at the ministries going on here in the future? We all know I'm the eighth pastor for this church, and there have been some good ones and some not good ones here. Most of them. Most of them. Yellow, yellow. Most of them have been good pastors. But there have been some others that were not always so good. And they, when they left the church, they left a bad taste in the community's mouth. Most of us have been a part of churches where there's been splits that have happened in the past. Think of the t- what might happen if you fall into sin. For me, it's not just a loss of income and a loss of a job, a loss of a ministry, but there are ramifications that go beyond this life, go beyond this pulpit. In society today, there is no big fear of God because we can look at their lives. There is a fear of what's going to happen in the future, but outwardly the fear of God is not in people's lives, and we contribute to this by our testimonies. Make sure that we are living according to God's law. Make sure that we are living according to his perfect law as Mike was talking about Sunday school this morning, his perfect law, meditating on it, let him become a part of your life every single day, making it fit, making your life fit to God's word. And Romans chapter 3, verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Even in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, people are saying, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? The world does not want to follow God's word. Have they seen anything in the people of God that would make them want to fear the Lord? Is there such devotion to God among God's people that an outsider attending one of our meetings will fall down on her face and worship the Lord? And like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, God is really among you. If somebody walked into this building this morning, would they be able to see God among us this morning? 
by our testimonies, by our smiles, by the words we're singing, by the, the word of God that we're proclaiming, is God really among you? I would hope so. What are we doing as the people of God here at Mountain States? To let our community see God in us. Are we unified behind a common purpose? Or do we fuss over petty issues? Do we fuss because not everybody wears slacks on the platform? I don't care. Do we fuss because not everything's the way it was 60 years ago? What is really important? We've been talking this year about loving God with all the heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Loving our neighbors, ourselves, living in community with one another and serving our community and serving globally as well. Making those our passions, making those the emphases that we, as we move forward to knowing him and making him known in the world. That should be what we are emphasized on, not the petty issues around us. We come together to help one another mature in Christ, Ephesians 4.12 says. I don't hear anything about petty issues in those big statements. See, God came to deliver us from sin. God came to deliver us from the petty. God came to deliver us from the power of sin in our lives. The results are in on this day. 500 dead in Susa, 75,000 in all the provinces, and the 10 sons of Haman were killed and then hung publicly. Those who rose up against the Jews trusted in the order of Haman. They trusted in their own might. They trusted in their own strength. They trusted in their own knowledge. They did not trust in God. Who do we trust in? Where do we put our trust the Persians put their trust in Haman and his law led to their destruction. The Jews put their trust in an unnamed God, unnamed in this book, though they know him as Jehovah, Yahweh, and the law that he crafted, and that led to their deliverance. We saw his fingerprints everywhere. We put our hope in Jesus, who is better than Mordecai, better than that who, the one who was raised up who laid his life down to save you and I. He laid his life down for us so that we might be delivered from our sins. So we might be delivered from the presence, not just the power, not just the penalty, but from the very presence of sin in our lives. It is possible. Not likely probable because we're all still human. But it is possible to live a sinless life to not have the presence of sin in our lives today. The Feast of Purim. Such a great feast. Not, not in the, in, in, in the uh, Law of Moses. It's a feast that was put forward to remind the Jews of their deliverance. I found a picture of Rich. A feast that they celebrate every year to commemorate what God did for their people. How God delivered them from the Jews. How God, I mean, how God delivered them from the Persians, from their enemies. We ought to be celebrating every single day because we have been delivered from the power of sin in our lives. 
we, among all people in the world, ought to be celebrating and have smiles on our faces every single day because we have been delivered. Yes, God delivered the Jews, their D-Day, their day of destruction. He delivered them from that, made it a day of deliverance. You can see God all through this text. Even this feast points toward him. And Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Leading into this time, leading up to March 473, the Jews were Sure, they were going to die. I mean, think back. This law had been crafted. This order had been put in place. You, Jewish people, will die. You have no choice. Just lie down. Let us come by and slit your throats. You're done. What are we going to do? The law is passed. We have to live up to it. But another law came in. Now we can stand up and fight. And God delivered his people. They were once mourning, turned into joy. Same way with us. Those who without Christ are mourning over their sin. Those without Christ do not know the presence and the power of, of Christ in their lives. They mourn over their sin. They recognize that it's your sin that keeps you from God. It's your sin that keeps you from enjoying fellowship and a relationship with Almighty God. And you drop to your knees and say, God, I need your strength. I need your forgiveness in my life. And that mourning turns to joy as you experience Christ in your life. Taking your sins away, being cleansed from your sin. That's what we picture in baptism. That's what we picture when we go outside and we have this baptistry set up out here and you go down under the water and you come back up. It's an image and a picture of what Christ has done in your life by taking you and you die dead to your sins. And you raise the newness of life and your sins are gone. Morning turned to joy. When was your deliverance day? When was your day of deliverance? Have you experienced deliverance in your life? Have you experienced that time in your life when you remember, I look back and I remember falling to my knees and say, God, I need your forgiveness. And you humble yourself and you say, God, I don't want to live like this any longer. I need your help. I need this old man gone. What about since then? If Christ truly came to free us from the power and the presence of sin in our lives, Where are we today in living out that sin-free life? Our thought life, our speech, our actions, every day, I just kick myself. I go to bed at night and, God, I failed you again. I need your deliverance. I need your freedom. I need to have this old man gone. Maybe there's an area in your life today that you need to have gone. You need God to deliver you from that. To experience the freedom that is found in Christ, the freedom that is the holiness that can be found only in Christ, not in my own strength. Because as David Edder, I can't do it. As your pastor, I can't do it. As Drew Allen, he can't do it. 
Because Don Munson, he can't do it. Regina Edder can't do it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your position. In our own power and our own strength, we cannot be free of this stuff. It is Christ working in us and through us that frees us from these sins. This frees us from, Paul said it best, those things I want to do, I don't do. Those things I don't want to do, I do do. Anybody else can agree with that? That's me. That's my life every single day. Those things I don't want to do, I do. Those things I do want to do, I don't do. Every single day. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. (laughs) We need deliverance. This morning, as we meet together, God wants to meet you here. We sang it this morning. Will you meet him here this morning? Not outside. Before you leave, will you meet God right here? Have you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning as Drew comes? Prepare for the final song. This morning, God wants to meet you here. He wants you to humble yourself, to submit yourself, to submit your thoughts, to submit your speech, to submit your actions to him. Are you a child of God this morning? At some point in your life, a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, fifty years ago, you committed your life to Christ. But you could say this morning, Pastor, I've been freed from the penalty of sin in my life but I'm still living under the presence of sin. I want to pray for you this morning. If that's you, I just want to raise up your hand. I want to pray that you will be delivered from the presence of sin in your life so that you can go out of here and live a great sin-free life. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray for you this morning that you can go forward in power, not in your own power, not in your own strength, but in the power and strength of God to be delivered from sin in your life. Anybody else raise your hand before we pray? Thank you. Maybe this morning you'd say, Pastor, I've never been delivered. I've been living this life. I've been trying to do it all in my own power. I've been trying to please you by being good. But I need freedom. I need your total and complete deliverance this morning. And I need to know, I want to submit myself to God for the very first time. This morning, I want to give us an opportunity to respond to that. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if that's you, if you want to commit your life to Christ this morning and know what true and complete deliverance is, repeat after me. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to know what it's like to follow you sin-free without the power of sin, the penalty of sin in my life. I know you died for me. You died to take away my sins. You died to give me a new life. And 
I ask, Lord Jesus, this morning that you would save me from my sins. Forgive me. In Jesus' name, amen. If that's you this morning, I would so love to talk to you after church this morning. I so want to know that you have committed your life to Christ this morning. We're going to have a baptismal service in a few weeks. And we would love to have you added to the list of those who are going to be baptized. If you've committed yourself to Christ for the very first time, don't leave this morning before you talk to me. Let's stand and sing this final song this morning as well. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I, where I run, the fountain you drink from. He is your song. Let's sing this morning.